do you just work for a nonprofit or do you actually live for purpose? So I've been in the nonprofit world for my entire career. And although I'm an expert in this space, there's a lot of things about the nonprofit industry that I don't like. And in fact, I'm on a mission to change. The good news is that there's nothing inherently wrong with nonprofits. They're a great way to structure a business offering a public service or a public good. They require a board for checks and balances and give community members and funders and other stakeholders the opportunity to give back to a cause that speaks directly to their heart. It allows us to play a role in the solution. But nonprofits are messy. They're messy because, well, humans run them. And the majority of problems that nonprofits face are the direct result of the leadership that runs them. That's right. It's you. You're the problem. But that's actually a good thing. It's good news because you is something that we can change. And when we do, not only will the nonprofit be better off, but the community, your staff, the volunteers, and the people that you serve will be better off too. And you may have some limiting beliefs and it's not your fault that you have these limiting beliefs because I also had these limiting beliefs and it's not because I wasn't confident or because I came up with them. It was because the industry fed these to me and I had to fight through a whole bunch of imposter syndrome before I felt confident saying, you know what? The whole industry has it wrong and trailblaze my own path. And that's what I want you to do. So today I'm going to go through some of the myths that I think not only hold nonprofits back, but I think they cripple the industry. And I hope it gives you permission to think differently. Okay, so let's do this. Welcome to episode 35 of For Purpose Live, where I help you get clear, get focused, and be impactful by showing you how to step fully into the calling that you've been given without taking on the common narrative that nonprofits need to struggle. That's right. Together, we can get you in your sweet spot using your strengths and your talents to serve this world and build a movement of support for your mission simply by living for purpose on purpose. I am Rebecca Britt, your host, and today we are talking about these myths that are crippling the industry. So before we go there, if you have stepped out in faith, you're a nonprofit founder, you've stepped out in faith, and you feel like you are trying so hard just to keep your nonprofit afloat, then I want you to go over to forpurposelive.com secrets and grab the web class, the top three secrets of running a nonprofit without killing yourself. You will learn so much from that. And I hope that that will help you not feel like you need to kill yourself to step into your calling. Okay, if you're a founder and you're watching this, likely you have some issues in your nonprofit. In my experience with nonprofits, I had all the issues. My board didn't know what they were supposed to do. Hell, I didn't know what they were supposed to do, but I know that it wasn't what they were doing. I was pretty sure of that. I didn't have reliable revenue and donors. I had no staff. Uh, but worst of all, I was just super aware of all the problems, like everything that I needed to do, everything that was burdening me. And I didn't know what I should prioritize. And there were so many things to do that I was overwhelmed. And I actually felt pretty resentful and stuck have you ever felt paralyzed by your to-do list? Like you have so many things to do and you don't know how to prioritize it and you know that you need to prioritize it. So you actually are paralyzed and you don't do anything. 
And while you're sitting there doing nothing and not knowing what to do, you let your emails or the calls or the volunteers or the people that walk in your space kind of dictate what you do. And that's just like kind of how you run on autopilot, putting out fires or, or doing whatever, because an a, a volunteer asks you for something, a board member emails you something. Okay, good. Somebody's telling me what to do, but you know what? As leaders, as good nonprofit leaders of a public good or service, we do not get the luxury of just responding, okay? We do not get to just do what other people tell us to do. If you want to do that, go be an employee. Don't take donor dollars for your cause, okay? We are leaders of an organization that has asked supporters to invest in us, okay? They trust us to make sound decisions, to be strategic and choose the activities that have the highest return on investment for our mission and for our cause, for our solution to society's issue, okay? And we need to be able to go from running a nonprofit to living for purpose. And how do we do that? Well, it's by bucking a lot of the industry myths and forging a new path, okay? A new path for the nonprofit sector. And I want to go through some myths that are out there and that are holding you back because these myths are just rampant in the nonprofit sector and, uh, they held me down for a long time until I really was able to say, you know what, this is wrong, this is wrong. Myth number one is that your programming has to be evidence-based. Okay, so I ran a nonprofit and um, people would always ask me, you know, is your program evidence-based? And I knew it wasn't because I created it. It was a new innovative program and I created the program. So I knew it wasn't evidence-based because I hadn't done research and I was trying like, shoot, I went back to school and got my master's in program evaluation so that I could evaluate a program so that I can understand how to demonstrate impact. Like I get that evidence matters, but everything you do doesn't need to be evidence-based. Okay. Because there's still a problem in society, right? Your mission addresses a problem. So the problem hasn't been solved. Meaning all the best evidence-based programs have not solved the problem. I'm not saying that they're not good. I'm not saying that we shouldn't just replicate something that is evidence-based. If it's working, let's do it. And I do think that being evidence-based, like if you were going to start a nonprofit to serve a specific population, I don't think that you should just sit there and do what you think you should do like because you haven't read any research on the topic or whatever. But if you have an innovative idea that is different from what's out there and you have good reason, maybe personal experience, maybe you're mixing several different evidence-based things, maybe you have an idea that you're just gonna do things differently and you have good reason to back that up, then try it. Okay, and really get why you doing it differently matters. So you need to you need to go out there and see what's out there. What's evidence-based? What are other people doing that is actually working for the population, getting the desired result you want? If you're not getting the desired result, or the reason why your nonprofit exists is because the desired result isn't good enough, or the programs out, that are out there aren't good enough, or the evidence-based that is out there right now like is okay, but could really be built off of, then you can just make sure you know everything that's out there. Like you, you have actually done all the research on all the evidence-based stuff because you want to, if somebody comes to you and goes, why aren't you doing all of these things that are proven to be evidence-based? You want to have a response to that. 
Well, these are the flaws I've seen in those things. Or the research, even though it's evidence-based, the research is quite small on that. So for example, uh, equine assisted learning is what I did with children in foster care. And almost all the research out there on equine therapies, animal therapies, you know, equine assisted learning, all of that batch of research, almost all of them were eight to 10 week programs. Okay. So, and even now like Medicaid, uh, insurance people, they will only pay for eight weeks or whatever. So that's why most programs are built on that. Well, guess what? That's not good enough for me. It's not good enough for children in foster care. Children in foster care have had unstable beginnings. It takes them a very long time to build a relationship with someone. So to put a kid in eight weeks of programming and call it stable moments. It doesn't seem very stable to me to only allow eight weeks when a kid's just starting to come out of their shell and just getting to know their mentor. So honestly, I would have done like years of programming for this population so that they literally had a stable place to go to for as long as they needed to. And then I did realize that mentors can't stay forever and there did need to be some interruption in programming. You couldn't just do a program that lasts forever. So I chose 10 months. Was 10 months evidence-based? No, it worked for the school year. Um, it worked to have two months off. It worked for the families and it worked for the mentors. So I found a reasonable time that could still make it long-term. Now, people have asked me, is 10 months evidence-based? I say no, but... Eight weeks isn't enough and that's all the research shows. So yes, there is good evidence in the research that shows that, you know, eight weeks of animal therapy is good, but it's not good enough for this population and this is why. And so we're doing 10 months. Oh, and by the way, we have all these other structured ways. Okay, so you don't have to be evidence-based. Just say the limitations of the current evidence-based and how you're better or different. And then certainly you would want to add on to that um, how you're evaluating yours. So, you know, we implemented a pre and post test so that we could see life skills kids had when they entered the program and then life skills when kids exit the program to see if there was an increase in life skills. You could test your duration by doing like a life skills test at one month, two month, three month, four month, five month, six month, and see really where's the sweet spot that we're getting the most. And that's one way to figure out how long is the most benefit duration of programming. But I make it so that the kids can stop for the two months after the 10 months, and then they can re-enroll in the next year. Because again, for me, it's just very important that say a kid is moving from foster home to foster home, that they are, if, if we can provide it, they are able to come and have one stable, healthy relationship in their life and stable means that it's consistent, right? It stays in their life. Now, that's another piece of the program that actually is evidence-based. Harvard research says that one of the biggest things to build resilience in children with early complex trauma is one healthy relationship. This could be a coach, this could be a parent, this could be an uncle, okay? but one healthy relationship in the child's life over time that they could rely on. So my program, there is not specific research on my actual model, right? My actual model with individualized plans of care and equine assisted learning and foster kids, like very specific things to my model. But there is things that say equine learning is good for six to eight weeks with kids. Okay, so not specifically my program, but I have some research base there. 
And then I have some research base to say, hey, but particularly with this population, it's long-term relationships that are healthy. Okay, so I'm taking pieces of the evidence to support my model, and then I'm evaluating my model as I go. Okay? But no, if somebody says, is your program, Stable Moments program, is it evidence-based? No, I have not done bona fide research on it. I apply for grants to get research and we're trying to get research. We have program evaluation methods in place and we're looking at that data, but no, I don't have an evidence-based program. And oh my gosh, can you imagine if I just said, well, I guess I won't do this because it's not evidence-based and I just chose to do an eight-week program with kids. That's a specific population that is underserved and not many people are serving them anyway. So the research wouldn't be there. My point is you needed my innovation. You needed my innovation to say, I'm not just gonna choose program, then that's eight weeks. That doesn't feel good to me because I know that these kids need long-term relationships, okay? I just don't want you to feel like your programming isn't good because it, it's evidence-based. Understand the evidence out there. Understand why or why not you're choosing that evidence base. How are you adding to it? How are you different? Why are you different? And then stand on that hill. Get confidence about why you're different. No, we're not evidence-based. This is why. We don't have the evidence base to prove this. And I'm on a mission to do that. Okay? And I've got good reasons. Okay? So, again, you're not just choosing programming out of the air because you think it would be nice that kids get this thing. No. You're seeing what's out there. You're choosing if it aligns with what you're trying to do replicate it. Stable moments, there are stable moments locations across the U.S. and that's because people go, wow, that looks like a nice replicable model. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. And they are replicating it. So go ahead and replicate a model if it works and you're looking for programming to serve a population and it does exactly what you need it to do. Maybe you're the only person in a specific county or state that's going to start this model and you really want to bring it to your state. Perfect. But don't feel like I felt and felt like you were not good enough because your programming wasn't evidence-based yet. The space, the whole industry needs space for innovation and you never know, you might be on to the next thing, the next solution that's really going to be the thing. It might catch on. You might be able to license your program model, make it replicable, have other people do your program model like I did. So don't let it being evidence-based cripple you and don't try to like pigeonhole yourself into evidence-based areas if you have an innovative idea. Get jazzed about it, get excited about it, and start saying why yours is better even though it isn't evidence-based or why you believe in it because even, even though it isn't evidence-based, okay? Myth number two is bigger is better. Most nonprofits that I work with uh, doing strategic planning with, they have a myth or a limiting belief that they want to scale. Um, so they, first of all, think that if they are serving five kids right now, a good goal for them is to serve 10. If they're serving 10, a good goal is them to serve 100. If I ask them, where do you see your nonprofit in five years, they are serving more people, okay? And they think of that as just, you know, get more kids through the door, get more staff, get a bigger budget. And yes, does more money pay for more staff? And does it usually mean that you can serve more kids? Yes. But sometimes people get so focused on serving more that they let a lot of other things slide. And they think that funders want to see that like progress over time means 
that you are serving 10 kids one year and 20 kids the next year and 30 kids the next year. And that's what progress is. And that's the only determination or measure of progress. And that's where we can fall because we do so much just to get more kids through the door and to support more programming and to get more money to support that incremental change that we may be missing bigger opportunity. You may be able to make more impact in the lives of a smaller amount of people while you are also either creating more programming or developing your programming into a replicable model or getting all of your foundational needs met so that you can write grants or so that you can get funding so that you can have staff so that you can scale in whatever way is best for the population. It doesn't, for me, it did not mean serving 25 kids in one location and then serving 30. And then my property would have maxed out at 50 or a hundred kids. And instead I kept serving less, you know, I kept it at 20. I'm not serving any more here. I'm going to build the replicable model. I'm going to license the program. And now I serve kids at all these different locations across the United States, okay? Way more than my one location could have done. But I really had to tell people, we're not taking on more kids. We're not growing. And everybody really felt like, a lot of people in the industry felt like, well, what are you going to tell donors? You know, and I wasn't able to show that I was going to be able to license this program yet. I wasn't really able, there was not much to show for it when I went inside and built the whole model and wrote a book and did all the things that I needed to do to lay this foundation for this bigger vision. People want to see immediate gratification, immediate revenue coming in. They want to see immediate more kids in the program. They want to see a busy hubbub of, you know, community volunteers and all this stuff. So you need to hold the vision. Everything goes through a cycle, right? We go through winter periods, hibernation periods, um, where we build things and, you know, things need to go dormant for a while. We need to work on things like when we're pregnant with something, you can't really see on the outside, but we're building something. Okay. And to be able to birth like our larger vision, we can't just constantly be externally growing. We need to come inside and work on whatever our foundational things are that are going to speak to that larger scale. So if your vision, just think about whatever your vision is and think about what you need to do to get you there. It may not be getting new staff so that you can serve more people. And if that takes up all your time and you can't come in and do some of the infrastructure stuff, if you do want to serve a whole bunch of kids, but that doesn't just look like I'm going to bring in another kid today and another kid tomorrow, another kid tomorrow, but you don't have any of the staff or the funding or the real solid ground to be able to accept new kids into the program, then don't do that. What are you going to do? Allow 45, 50 kids come in and then tell them, you know, we didn't, we're a little top heavy. We didn't think of this right. So we're going to have to pause programming. Sorry. No, as a leader, it's your job to stop and say, okay, cool. We want to get there. We're going to stop and serve just what we do now. We're just going to serve the five kids we have. We're going to build all of these things. Now that we're actually serving kids, we can take pictures for marketing. We can start building case studies. We can start doing some program evaluation to see the impact of our program on the small amount of kids that we have. Then we can build our internal documents, our impact roadmap, our impact report. We can build up our grant. We can apply for grants. Take this time while your program is small to work on all of those things. Because if you grow your program too big, this is like the problem of most businesses and nonprofits, you scale too big, too quick without the staff, the infrastructure, or in your time that you need to be able to tend 
to all of the administrative stuff, then you are going to make yourself feel like you're killing yourself to run your nonprofit. You're really going to have a hard time telling people no at some point. You're going to be working hard just to keep the lights on. You'll have scaled too big too quick. Okay. So just be grateful for what you have. What you have is enough. One kid, two kids, five kids, a few people that you're offering programming to really invest in those people to get what is your model? What are your systems? What are your processes? What are your standard operating procedures? How do you want this to work? What's your volunteer training? If you don't have everything done, all of your workflows, all of your documents that are going to help you run when you scale, all of your policies and procedures, if you don't have all that stuff and you are still small, you're in this great place. Stay small. Build all of that while you have a program that's running, but it's running on a small scale. And you can use that when you go to funders and you go to donors, instead of being sheepish and being like, well, we haven't scaled yet. We haven't gotten up to the amount of kids that we want to get to. Um, but we, we hope to in a couple, be like, what we did is we took this first year, we took this second, wherever we're at, however many years in, what we've really been doing while we've served these five is we've gotten our model down. We've really made sure that we get all of our systems and processes. We've spent a lot of time applying for grants. We've spent a lot of time, you know, researching evidence-based programming or creating program evaluation methods for our programming. We've just made sure that our organization is going to be sustainable so that we never need to tell a kid that one, we're not open or that we're not offering services next year. So I know funders would love to hear that you've taken the time to take care of the house, that you've built the structure that can support all of the kids that are going to come when they write the check. And of course, you don't need to be a nonprofit that serves kids. That was just part of the example. So bigger is not always better. Take this time and don't feel badly that you only serve a certain amount. Make it intentional. Say, we intentionally only serve these few people because this is what we're working on. We're working on getting all of our systems and processes and our board and how we're going to run and our planning, all that stuff we're getting done now so that we can scale. I do think it's great that when nonprofits start out that they just start serving. I do think that you should just get a kid in the door, get them in for free, get, you know, whatever, because you're not going to, as much as you want to figure out how you're going to serve them, you don't know until you start working with the population, right? So I say, just say, Hey, I'd like to serve this population and start working, start doing something that you think you want to do. And it's through working with the population that you're going to refine the model uh, or your programs and your services, refine your mission, refine all the things. So I say, go ahead, just get started. But then know in the first couple years and in, in that first pilot, whatever program that you are not just, okay, this is what we're doing and we're just going to keep running and keep growing it. No, we're going to pause and take a very intentional pilot program and work on all of the stuff that we need to do to make it sustainable. Okay. And then finally, the last myth is that overhead is bad. Okay, and I do actually see that some of the industry is starting to transition a bit from this. But like I just said, you may think that a funder doesn't want to fund your operations or you getting all of your ducks in a row. I personally, as a funder, would definitely want to fund somebody that has all their ducks in a row, okay? Or is telling me why they're going to prioritize all that internal work. So 
there's this like myth in the nonprofit world that, you know, donors look at your expenses and that 12% of your expenses should go to salary and the rest should go to mission. And so you really need to be spending all of the money on backpacks and on direct programming and that you're not supposed to pay yourself anything or, you know, we can't afford social media person or administrative assistant or a grant writer or all those things that fall under administrative. And I'm not about to give you like financial advice or tax advice or anything like that. So definitely go back to the people that do your audits, your CPA or whatever, and, and ask like what legally you can do. But there's a way to say that a lot of things that you think are salaries or are not programmatic are programmatic. I mean, I know in my program, if I am not there, the program isn't running. And if somebody isn't getting grants, the program isn't running. If somebody isn't doing social media, then they're not building an awareness about your programs and about the cause, okay? So I don't believe that you need to have a certain percentage go towards programs or salary. I also think that you can make the case that a lot of positions are programmatic that people don't think are programmatic. But my biggest thing to tell you for funders is be transparent so say exactly what you spend your money on and then back it up. Don't uh, do what I've seen a lot of nonprofits do, which is categorize things all wonky so that their percentage can end up being 12% and that they look like they're sending everything on programmatic and they're ashamed of the fact that they spend money on salary. No, say exactly what you spend your money on, okay? And then come out and talk about it. Say, yes, we hired a social media manager and they get paid exactly this. And this is the great results that their work is having. We've brought in X number of kids to get served strictly through our social media campaigns. Oh yes, we did get a development director and we are paying him a nice salary. Guess how many grants we've gotten to support our mission because of him. Yes, we spend this much money on rent. Yes, we spend this much money and guess what? we were able to fund the program or give the kids this beautiful lobby that they love to come in and feel welcome to, okay? So be open about how you spend your money and say exactly what it's going towards. Also, don't forget to talk about your pain points. Yes, and this is the additional staff we would have and this is what this staff would get us and this is how it would really help the kids. Listen, Nobody wants to fund and nobody wants to be a part of a nonprofit that is just always, always struggling. And to be honest, you can see just by tracking donor dollars, donors like to be part of a winning team. So donors go into these like beautiful buildings or churches or whatever, and they give money because they see all the good that's happening. You go to a broken down shed with somebody that's eating out of a food bank and they're like, yeah, we need money because we just, we can't afford anything. We can't, people don't want to give to that as much. They want to give to something that feels vibrant and alive and sustainable. Okay. So overhead is not bad. Overhead isn't bad, but don't like be afraid of the numbers. The truth is that it takes this to run it. If the kids need all new, whatever, supplies every year because you don't want them to use old crappy supplies tell that story don't be like oh you know the funders are going to make assumptions about that we just throw supplies out and you know we should be using these more and we could be better with the money ask the donors ask your community say you know what 
we were handing down supplies every year and then we saw the faces of the kids that got kind of the used crappy supplies and we just felt like we wanted to give them new supplies. So now we donate the old supplies and yes, do supplies cost us more money? They do. But we are here, we're seeing the kids, we are watching what's happening and it's not good enough for them. So we are investing in this. People will get it if you have good reasons. What people want, what funders want more than anything is to be communicated to. They want to know who you are, where your heart's at, what are you doing with the money? Why are you doing it? And the more you have these conversations, whether it's through email, through campaigns, through social media, through personal connection, through events out at your place, the more you have these conversations, the more they're just like, I trust her. Yeah, we know, we just trust her. She can make all the decisions, all the staffing, all of the whatever. She doesn't need to explain herself anymore because she's just a rock star and we get where her heart's at and we get that she's transparent and all of the decisions she makes are sound. That's what you want. You don't want people looking at your pie chart on your website deciding if you're worthy. You want people to be like, Rebecca's worthy. Have you heard her? She's awesome. We're giving her money. She's doing amazing things. Boom, done, okay? And the more people you get like that, the more people you get word of mouth, the more of a movement you build. You don't need to like worry about what your pie chart says because people know your heart, okay? So let's go over the three myths again. Your programming does not have to be evidence-based. If it's innovative, that's fine. Just make sure you know the evidence that's out there. And whether it's evidence-based or innovative, either way is fine. You have to be able to communicate it and say why your program is the way it is, why you chose the programming you chose. As long as you can make a good case, it doesn't need to be evidence-based. That rhymed. Bigger is not always better. Take the first few years, take while your programming is small, take it while you only have a few kids or a few people that you're serving and spend all that time to figure out the best way to serve them and to get all of your operations and your administrative stuff in order so that someday when you scale, you feel super good about it and you're not like, desperate trying to get more, more, more people in the door. You're spending time on things that matter so that you can sustain and support more later, okay? And overhead is not bad. Spend your money on what your population and your cause needs and just be able to communicate why you spent your money that way, okay? Just be able to communicate. I would rather you spend your money in a way that you felt was intentional and then tell that story, then spend your money in a way that you didn't think was an intentional, but you're trying to make a pie chart say something, okay? All right, so that's it. If you are someone that's trying to run a nonprofit and you feel like you're killing yourself, please go grab my secrets web class at forpurposelive.com secrets. Hope this was helpful. Make sure to Comment below one of these myths that you are like ready to get rid of. You are ready to take the living belief off that the nonprofit industry has fed you. Which one of these myths are you going to just stop believing? All right. I hope this was helpful. Thank you so much for your service to this world.